I was asked to get a technology instruction before I talked. I'm just closing the computer. My technology is up here. So. Um, well, it's a pleasure to be here because I've had a number of near misses with this institute over the last 18 years or so, because I heard a lot about it from my students. Uh, I think there's a Cornelian in the room, Franz Hofer. Franz, are you here? No. Franz is cutting class. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> but a lot of other Cornelians and many other American graduate students have actually looked to this institute for the last 10 or 15 years as sort of a, a location where they could talk to each other. That used to be at the I House in Roppongi, and for some reason that stopped, and it's now this institute. And a former student of mine who is now a professor at Princeton, David Lahaney, I think he had lots of friends here. And, uh, so there was sort of an attempt that the schedule never worked out. So when Gabi said, uh, would I do this, uh, I said, oh, I'd be delighted. And uh, I must say, looking at the list of people in the room, it is a very cosmopolitan, polyglot crowd I'm talking to. This is not just Japan, and this is not just Germany. So uh, that is really quite wonderful. Uh, um, I don't regard myself as a Japanese specialist. Um, how can you be a specialist in a country where you can't talk the cab driver to find Keio University, as I did this morning? You know, uh, this, this cab driver didn't know how, how to find Keio from Roppongi, which was, you know, you can walk there in 25 minutes. I didn't have time. It took me 45 minutes on almost 4,000 yen. So, uh, and I couldn't help, you know. Uh, uh, then I watched with Gabi in the cab, you know, this afternoon. The body language of that cab driver talking to this German made me realize what I'd missed in the last 30 years. I didn't learn Japanese. But I'm in a discipline where you're entitled to talk about something as long as you can fly over the country, okay? <laughs> That's me. Uh, and I have made a living out of it. Uh, and I'm, I used to be terribly defensive about it. Uh, I still don't go at Cornell to there's a Tuesday luncheon for the East Asia crowd. Gabi could go because she can gab in an Asian language. I tried to go once and they wouldn't talk to me. Okay, so, uh, so my, my approach to matters in Asia is through a filter. Uh, and I no longer feel defensive about it because I've made it sort of an art in my version of social science to think things together which other people think apart because they know too much about their subjects. That's basically been the, my career. Now I did a book, I mean this, this one on Japan, but I did, did a book on comparing Asia and Europe and when I counted it was over 50 countries. Well how do you study 50 countries, you know, not as a journalist, not as a public intellectual, not as a scholar. And I've sort of found myself doing this work pretty much by myself and being sort of treated with polite indifference by most of my colleagues who actually know the language and the subject. But they're often typical introductions saying, let me introduce you to Professor Katzenstein. Uh, he's always wrong, but quite often in an interesting way. Uh, and so this, this talk, which sort of integrates a number of things I've been thinking about and extends them in ways into the future, is of that nature. But behind the talk uh, is a fairly deeply felt political issue. Uh, uh, we got a new university president, by the way, how long should I talk? 
Okay, I'm like Fidel Castro. I can go on and on and on. So, uh, uh, and he wanted uh, David Scott, and he wanted an intellectual event. They prepared a list for him. Some people couldn't come. He settled on Robert Kagan, who is one of the neocons, most prominent neocon. And the faculty wasn't ecstatic, but we said, why not? But we would like a chance to reply. Uh, Kagan had just published a book, 19th Century American History, Foreign Policy, and uh, so I was one of two. And, uh, and sort of it took me for my 10 minutes, you know, I am not prepared 10 minutes of talk that carefully because it was a lot of was pent up in me emotionally. Uh, because the, the neoconservative turn under the Bush administration uh, really was a turn back to 19th century German political theory, uh, to a doctrine of geopolitics uh, which created great disasters in Europe, in Germany, and for the world. Uh, and Dick Cheney and his strategists and that crowd in the Defense Department also created a disaster quite predictably because they really did not understand the character of power. Uh, and I'm currently, I mean, in this talk indirectly, but in my work, you know, thinking about conceptions of power which are different from German geopolitics. And beyond Bush, means hopefully that, that the American conception of power will be different from what it was in the last eight years. Uh, but I wouldn't count on it. I, mean, I think neoconservatism is now part of America's political tradition. It wasn't invented in 2000. It was invented in the 1950s and 1960s. It has had a considerable impact on American liberalism. Uh, it is well institutionalized in the bureaucracy in Washington at middle level. They cannot be fired. And it is extremely well represented in the inner circle of McCain. So the notion, oh, yeah, we can sit out the Bush administration, then America will come to its senses and be, will be the old America again, I think that is wishful thinking. And that's important, I think, for the Japanese and the Germans and others to take into account. Um, so in some ways, the, this, this talk is also a way for me to think implicitly about categories of analysis. But in order to satisfy the expectation of um, my host, I do want to talk about the Imperium just a little. Because uh, uh, it is a category which I chose not just because it sounds good, but because actually, and this is a book which I published in 2005, it characterizes American power, and I took it out of my classical education. That this is a concept from Rome. The Imperium is different from the traditional empire, those empires which the Europeans ran, or the Japanese, or the Ottomans, uh, or the Muscovites, or now the Chinese. Uh, that is, it's different from the territorially based empires. Territory is part of the imperium. America has over 700 bases, military bases overseas. Most of them are very tiny and small. Uh, but the significant ones, you will still come to around 40 to 50. And Okinawa and Korea, you know, are the, the holdovers from the Cold War, indicating that the Cold War hasn't quite ended. They eventually will go. But America has military bases. Uh, and territor territory is important to the Imperium, just as military powers. Um, but there's another form of empire. And let's just call it the empire with a capital E. This is the formulation by Hart and Negri 
in a book with the same title. Uh, Michael Hodge is a sociology, Negri is an Italian Marxist, and the book is is a combination of theoretically informed speculation by Hart about virtual power, and Negri is a yeah, it's a German Marxist of the 1970s. Staatsmonopol Kapitalismus, state monopoly capitalism. Negri sat in a prison for a long time, you know, and the, the book doesn't really hold together at all intellectually, but it is between two covers, right? Uh, <laughs> and, and the insight in the, the theoretical insight in the empire with a capital E is to say that there is non-territorial power. Now we call it often soft power, the Brits used to call it the informal empire. Uh, so you know, most traditional empires have this dimension. Uh, but it's become more important in the American imperium than territorial control. I think there's a re-weighting, re if you look at the history of empires, that it has become more important. Uh, that has to do something with the United States, because uh, America, to some extent, is just an idea ever since 1492, and one which is very threatening to most other countries particularly the established political elites. Um, so it's an idea, but it's an idea which became an ideology and which was reinfused by technology. Uh, so this non-territorial dimension is really very important. Uh, so the imperium in this conceptual move combines the old and the new into something distinctive. Uh, now in the in the history of America, there is a lot of debate domestically about the nature of that imperium. You know, different parts of America think of different parts of the country, disagree very strongly. Uh, you know, right now, you know, there is an important election in Pennsylvania, you know, and American politicians, being politicians, that means being hypocritical, uh, pretend that, you know, free trade with Colombia is really a great disaster. This would be very unfair to the poor working class in Pennsylvania. It turns out that Pennsylvania has lost 200,000 jobs in seven years. One-third of the total job loss in the United States is in that state. So why politicians would want to lie at that particular moment is quite self-evident. Uh, but I don't think that Colombia is really a great threat to Pennsylvania. Um, now, in the past, you know, the, the British Empire was an empire of informality. Uh, you know, Britain controlled things well outside of its territorial domain through finance, sometimes through the high status of uh, upstairs British culture. Uh, uh, and it was, of course, part of the American past called the open door policy. Uh, and the open door, you know, sometimes pushed that door open quite forcefully in Japan in the 1850s, for example. Uh, Commodore Perry said, we'd like to come in. The Japanese said, that's not a good idea. He said, I'll come back with gunships. Uh, so, so this notion of the open door, the informal empire, always had a combination of the military and, and the commercial aspect to it. Uh, but for the Americans in particular, more than the Brits, because liberalism, the liberal credo became the one which America thought it believed in, it was free access to society and economy. And this became very clear after 1945. The free world was distinguished by those principles. Uh, and uh, it became later on as something, you know, which you would study when you studied multinational corporations. Um, Le Défi Américain was a bestseller 
in Europe in the 1960s, Servan Schreiber. And the fear was American multinationals would eat up Europe, lock, stock, and barrel. Well, it didn't turn out that way. But it is true that American multinationals were the beneficiaries of European integration. They were the first ones to operate in a European market. It took the Germans and the British and the French and the Italians much longer to get organized for that. First 20, 30 years, European integration s served American interests, commercial interests. Uh, then later on, scholars would write books like Sovereignty at Bay, which was a book by Ray Vernon at the Harvard Business School. And then later came globalization theory. These are the academic products of that drive of the American empire with a capital E, which is part of the American imperium. Um, now compared to, to Britain and the Soviet Union, Britain in the 19th centuries, the Soviet Union after 1945, this imperium uh, was much more encompassing. America controlled four of the six power centers after 1945. It did not control Moscow and Beijing, but it controlled the others, uh, directly or indirectly. Uh, and that wasn't true of Britain. Britain was, in a way, a marginal player in Europe, which was the center of the world at the, in the era of imperialism. And it was a self-chosen policy of marginalization. Uh, it wanted to be the balancer to just make sure that nobody would run Europe itself. Uh, and compared to the Soviet Union after 1945, the American imperium was global, while the Soviet empire was a small strip of territory in Eastern Europe, which the Soviet Union felt it needed as a defensive protective belt against the next war waged by whom? Germany against the Soviet Union. So it was a defensive move. Uh, some bits of territory which the Russian army, the Red Army, had controlled. Uh, so this imperium turns out to be very important and big in comparative perspective. The Americans, of course, disagreeing among themselves about it, have forgotten that in building the United States, they were pushing out people from the United States uh, in large numbers and into ghettos, a very unappealing story. Cornell has a Center for American Indian Studies. Well, the history of American Indians is a very unhappy one. Uh, and it's not reflected until very recently in the mainstream of American historiography. Uh, equally important, uh, Americans, if you ask my students, what about the history of California? They think California has always been part of the United States or the Southwest. Well, it's not true. You know, the Americans uh, had a president, President Polk. You will not find him commemorated on the, on the Washington Mall, even though he is the Bismarck or the Cavour of the United States. He waged a preemptive war against Mexico and took half of Mexico. That was California and the Southwest. Uh, this is not a history which you can read about in America, yeah, in specialized courses on American history, but it's not part of the collective awareness of who we are in, as Americans. Therefore, no monument to the Bismarck of the United States on the Washington Mall. Because Americans are not in the business of taking away territory from other people. Americans are a shining city on the hill, the Jerusalem of the new era, which will be attractive on its own merits without military power. That's the self-conception. 
well, you travel to Mexico City, you can visit the museum for interventionism. That's a museum saying, those bloody Yankees stole our country. It's a totally different view on history in the last 150 years. So this territorial drive, of course, doesn't stop at the water's edge. It didn't stop in California. It goes on to the Philippines, to the open-door policy in China, etc. But there is certainly true that after 1945, with the coming of nuclear weapons, there was a stop. There was sort of something else became more important, and it was this non-territorial drive. Uh, uh, the Imperium became structurally committed to openness, even though the Congress remains deeply ambivalent about free trade. Right? But the bipartisan coalition for a long time was very strong, and uh, it would take, you know, it would take more than the election in Pennsylvania to really shake that. Uh, it's worked extremely well for America, and most foreign policy elites in America are aware of it. It's worked very well for the rest of the world, too. That's one of the reasons why anti-Americanism in East Asia is very weak. You can't find a critic of globalization in East Asia. You'll find them in France, but not here in China. Thank you very much. The American Imperium made export-led growth possible. Um, so the character of the Imperium, the choice of the term, uh, and I spent so much time on it because I think it's really the world order under which Japan and Germany live is quite self-consciously chosen. It's not just a language, uh, choice of language. Uh, so how you exercise power in this imperium, that then becomes a matter of strategy. And what happened in 2000 was with the wrong crowd in power and being attacked as America was and being psychologically unprepared for this kind of vulnerability. I mean, it's hard to see, to recognize f for non-Americans how disoriented that society was. I mean, really shaking at its foundation because it had been attacked by air in a blue sky only once before. And when that happened, America committed itself to one mission, never again, never again at Pearl Harbor. And the entire Cold War was based on that presumption, airplanes flying around 24 hours a day, right? missile strike force ready. It was all saying, it will not happen again, and then it happened. And so the, the society was really, really totally disoriented. Uh, and in that moment of disorientation, when the available conceptual apparatus was there, here is a new way of dealing with a new threat. You could understand, even if you disagreed, as I did fundamentally, you could understand why they said, well, we'll rely on that one institution which we cherish most, you know, together with the Supreme Court, that's the U.S. military. And, uh, and we will wage a war on terror. And the Europeans were holding their heads, as were the Japanese, and saying, you cannot fight a war on terror, not with military means. You can't have a campaign against terror, relying on intelligence, the sharing of intelligence, police cooperations, and all the sorts of things which the Japanese and the Germans had developed a high skill as they fought their indigenous forms of terrorism, the Red Army faction. They had 20, 25 years of experience with that. And the Americans said, we are fighting a war on terror. They said, you're in the wrong ballpark. You've got to play by different rules. And the Americans said, no, no, this is the only game which, ex which we ex uh, understand. 
So the war on terror was defeated, well, was a defeat at the moment at which it was started. Um, and America is going to pay a heavy price for this. Not just the Iraq war in Afghanistan. So the Empyrean is open, uh, and therefore so are the regions, Asia and Europe, and the states which became central in Asia and Europe, uh, Germany and Japan. Uh, so let me move then to the regional level politics, from the Imperium now to the region. Uh, so in, in Europe, um, oh no, no, first I want to say, in this Imperium, it is true that America had always a remarkably clear-headed view about its strategic priorities. Uh, and this had a lot to do with the brilliant, insightful, long cable which George Kennan sent in 1946. Uh, about the character of world order after, during the Cold War, in the emerging Cold War order, in which he said, um, you've got to worry as Americans about e control of East Asia and control of Western Europe, um, which was to say in, in another language, you've got to integrate Germany and Japan into this imperium. So in the 1950s, there's a very good book written by uh, Professor Montgomery from Harvard, uh, using an enormous amount of social science research which the U.S. Army conducted in Germany and Japan. And the title of the book is very gripping. It's called Forced to be Free. Uh, that was the program for reconstruction. And my personal biography actually was not one of being forced to be free. I was socialized to be free. I thought the America House in Hamburg, wherever I was, Dumtor or what, was just about the coolest thing. It was much more interesting than my high school. I would go to lectures there. I would use the library. I thought this was great. And then I learned that there was something called American ice cream. That was also good. So I said, this is the country where I want to go. Okay. I wasn't forced to be free. I was socialized to be free. And it was not an accident. It was a very carefully prepared policy. The preparation started in 1943, and it was executed over a 20-year period. Uh, this is the kind of policy which America could have had for Iraq. But when you think in terms of geopolitics only, you don't worry about that. You just say, we are great, people are going to greet us with roses in their hands. There were no roses in Iraq, by the way. Okay. Um, so what about this region in Europe? Well, Germany came to be socialized and educated into the American way of power. Uh, it started forgetting its own ill-fated way of power. So much so that today the Germans think they are the true Americans. They look at the United States today and say, we hate you. They actually don't hate the Americans. They say, we hate you because you are like we were once. You are so despicable because you are like Germans, the old bad Germans. The character of anti-Americanism in Germany, which is so virulent and intense, now, I mean, I go to Germany, I have discussions with, with students, I think I'm living in another galaxy. Saddam Hussein, no, George Bush is the evil person, much more evil than Saddam Hussein, right? But I think it is a reaction, which I understand intellectually, to some extent emotionally, to saying, we were reprogrammed by you, and now you're changing the tune on us? You're now taking our old playbook and calling those plays? This is unreal. We are not doing this. Right? 
So Germany was fully socialized in this, and so was Europe. It became committed to a modified version of liberalism. And the United States eventually reluctantly committed ground troops to that political enterprise. Uh, but as it did it, the United States said, we want to teach you a new way of politics here. This was called the Marshall Plan. We give you the capital, but you have to spend it together. That was institutionalizing a new rule in diplomacy which had not existed in Europe before. It was a great, daring, imaginative leap in the history of diplomacy to bring multilateralism to Europe. Okay? People don't give American diplomacy enough credit for that. And out of this innovation in the late 1940s and early 1950s grew what's now the European Union. It's now second nature, the pooling of sovereignty in Europe. It doesn't mean giving up being German or French or Italian, but it means being able to negotiate and bargain on issues which most other nation states find hard to negotiate and bargain. Um, so the American Imperium in the title of a book by, by, by a Scandinavian scholar became an empire by invitation and integration. It wasn't a forced empire. There were the swings, of course, you know, during the Vietnam War in the early 1980s, now of anti-Americanism. And it is possible that this version of anti-Americanism is going to stick around longer. It's hard to know. But on the whole, until certainly until the end of the Cold War, and well into the 1990s. It was an empire by invitation and integration, or what I call an imperium. Now, what about Asia? Uh, well, here, the logic was quite different. Um, the logic which America, and the nations which America had, uh, it confronted in Southeast Asia after the loss of China, the so-called loss of China. Why was it? to the Americans and to lose China after it was the Chinese fighting a civil war. I've never understood that, but that's the terminology in, in, in Washington among American historians. It was a way of trying to figure out how to contain nationalist, anti-communist rebellions and revolutions. That was the character of the opposition of anti-communism. It was decentralized. While around the central front in Europe, it was centralized. It was, in the end, 50,000 Soviet tanks, which was which were threatening Europe. So the nature of the threat was different, and the response of the United States was different. What the United States saw in East Asia was not defeated great powers who would rise to great power status again, as in Europe. It wasn't seeing white people. It was seeing yellow people. It wasn't seeing Christians. It was seeing non-Christians. And I'm formulating this idea as sharply as I can because that was the language in the U.S. Senate and the U.S. Congress. When I call Dean Acheson a racist now, people say outraged in my profession. I think, Dean Acheson a racist? No. And I'll say, go read the speeches and go listen to the hearings. It's all written record. And many younger American diplomatic historians do this now. It was a racialized view of the world by America. And there was no reason to have multilateralism in East Asia with little yellow people who were still sitting in the trees. These are languages, this is language spoken in the US Senate in the late 1940s. This sounds shocking, but it isn't really shocking if you consider that Woodrow Wilson, the icon of American liberalism, was a racist. 
It's no news to anybody in Asia that he vetoed the racial equality clause at Versailles in 1919. You look at any textbook in American foreign policy, you ask any American undergraduate at Cornell, Woodrow Wilson is regarded as a globalization liberal, a good guy. Okay? They forget that he was raised in Virginia. He was a man of the South, deeply believing in racial inequality. It wasn't an accident. So liberalism and racism in American foreign policy are close twins. Well, that manifested itself in the late 1940s. So the, f the foundation of American diplomacy is not multilateralism, it is bilateralism. So the U.S.-Japan Security Treaty is actually the reflection of a general pattern of diplomacy throughout Asia. So these regional differences leave Asia and, and Europe at the end of the Cold War in very different positions, uh, with Europe now poised to move ahead and build a stronger Europe around multilateralism. You create the EMU, uh, you create a common foreign security policy, you integrate your police forces, you do all sorts of things in this new uncertain world. While the, in East Asia, the countries have now to start where the Europeans were in the 1950s. And they have moved an amazing, at amazing speed under different conditions and along a different trajectory. They're not copying Europe at all. Because in some ways in East Asia, the foundational institution of integration is not intergovernmental, but it's market ethnic capitalism. Markets are deeply integrated, always have been. So the logic of the regional politics in the Imperium are very different. Uh, and it's important to, to recognize those differences because the world is too complex to be run with one logic, the logic of power politics, let's say, from Washington. It just doesn't reflect what's happening on the ground. So let's move from the region to what I call the core states or supporter states inside the region, which is what Cannon was writing about in 1946. He says, integrate Germany and Japan because those were the only two countries which actually had dared to oppose with military might the strategic vision of Britain and the United States, the, one, the vision which had predominated for 150 years before. They both suffered monumental defeats and they were remade, not totally, but very substantially. So what, what is the role of these supporter states? By the way, when I talk to this, to Chinese or French audiences, they're saying, why are you focusing on Germany and Japan? Uh, and I don't focus on them because of their strategic importance or their size or their civilizational mission, but because for historical reasons, they had a particular political conception beaten out of their heads by military might. And therefore, they think about the world in ways which make them more inclined to align with the American vision. They don't have an alternative strategic vision. This is not true of China or Japan. They do have an alternative strategic vision. They don't really believe in it, certainly not the French, maybe the Chinese. Uh, but Germany and Japan are distinct not because of their size and technological importance, as Cannon thought, but because of the institutionalization of a memory of defeat, which makes them more pliable uh, and makes them more available for the political work to be done in the Imperium. And the political work is normally support, but sometimes actually it's criticism and resistance. 
Helmut Schmidt, after all, was the first German chancellor who defeated a sitting American president. Okay? There was President Carter. There was no love lost between those two by inducing a recession. He didn't buy, buy treasury notes any longer. So. so Germany and Japan become modified versions of what I would call, you know, we call it in Germany or you call it in Germany, a social market economy, and I would call it for Japan a productivity democracy. Very different forms of a softened version of capitalism, not liberal market capitalism. It was variants of this. So that in the study of comparative capitalism, they become alternative models, actually, in the 1970s and 1980s when they're riding high. Everybody was talking about the German or the Japanese model, and the Germans and the Japanese felt great. That was sort of a collective affirmation. It's almost as good as becoming the world champion in soccer. You, know? you have your own institutional version of capitalism. And it's true, it worked quite well for a while, and then as institutional models come and go, it didn't work so well. Uh, and the Germans and Japanese have become more humble uh, in trying to, to become the model for everything. Uh, but they were extremely successful in how they rebuilt themselves, and they were extremely successful in how they had an effect on the region around it. The Germans did it primarily through the Bundesbank. This is not recognized by the Germans as an exercise of power. For them, it's an exercise of common sense. But one person's common sense is another person's sense of being exposed to power. Okay? And in Europe, there's considerable ambivalence about it, but some countries really like it. The Italians think having a low inflation policy is really a great thing. Okay? And the French don't like it so much. Uh, the people who suffered most from it are, of course, the Germans. But then what else to expect? For them, it didn't work out too well to give up their currency. But it was not judged to be doing well. Doing well, the economic criterion wasn't important. It was a political calculation. And I think it was a very far-sighted one by Chancellor Kohl. Uh, so there was an exercise of power there. It wasn't recognized as power by the Germans, but it was. And it is now part of the European system of power. That central bank is sitting in Frankfurt. It has a German constitution. But the Germans no longer determine the votes. They have to play along. So far, the bank seems to be doing what most monetary elites in Europe want. Let's assume we were to go through a financial collapse of the international system, something which seemed highly implausible a month ago, but doesn't seem so implausible any longer. I wonder how the European bank is going to cope with that. Um, in Japan, it was through direct foreign investment. It was the realignment of currencies in 1985, which suddenly makes Japan the central economic force in Asia and reorganizes production alliances throughout Asia as Japanese firms move offshore and hollow out the Japanese economy. And then, of course, with the bursting of the bubble, uh, Japan goes into a prolonged period of decline. I'd say it's a pretty nice period of decline by historical standards for most societies. If you want to decline in relative wealth, this was the place to be. Uh, I was amazed in the 1990s reading what people write in the United States about Japan and then arriving in every day airport and I said, wow, if this is bad, I'd like to know what's good. Okay, um, But uh, these were two models of capitalism. Neither one of them believed in military power. The Germans had a, military, had a strong army but was not under national command. Uh, and both of them 
had privileged access to America. Privileged access, that American imperium was always open in the center. For the Japanese, it basically meant playing money politics, the way they play money politics in Japan, in the United States. At the top of the market in the late 1980s, 85% of all academic research in the United States was funded by Japanese foundations. 85%, we're talking about a budget of about $400 million. Right? Every university could do anything, would go to Tokyo and say, pay me. You know, and the Japanese paid because they, you can do what you want to. We are not putting any strings on the money. We just know that this money will create favorable public opinion for us, and that's all we want. There only once I think they called in their chits. This was not on university. It was on PR work in the political in, in Congress. There was the Toshiba submarine spy scandal when they Toshiba had sold sensitive technology to the Russians. This was in 1987 or 88. And for once, the Japanese said, now we've got to be sure that our support system in Congress works. Let's try it. And they pulled the thing, and it worked perfect. Okay. Uh, so the Japanese created a system. The Germans, totally different. The Germans create political foundations, you know, and, and, and give away money, and they do it rather well, I must say. Um, and eventually, you know, the foundation for democracy by, by, by created by Reagan is an imitation of Naumann and Konrad Adenauer and Willy Brandt and everything, you know. Uh, the foundation, the logic of the political foundations in the foreign policy of, United, uh, of, of Germany was that we will be in bed with whoever is in power. The government will always deal with the government, but the foundation will make the deals with the opposition. Yeah? A very brilliant innovation in diplomacy. It worked extremely well for the Germans. Very different way of playing politics in the United States and around the world, but utterly common and acceptable for the, um, for the Germans. So that's the logic of Germany and Japan. Now, how did it work? And here I want to briefly talk about Japanization, and Germanization isn't really the word. Uh, Europeanization. I will be very brief on that uh, because there isn't enough time. Uh, but you can see the logic uh, from the Japanization. I may talk a little bit about sinicization. Uh, so the Japanese had this model that, you know, we are the lead goose of this flying geese formation and we will shed off our older technologies and these other little countries can then do this and they get rich and powerful, uh, rich and peaceful and they follow us, you know. But in this conception of Japan as the, the leader in this V formation, not of bombers, of geese, right? It was a very civilian uh, metaphor which an uh, economic historian created in the 1920s. It was a brilliant, brilliant, and wonderfully enriching metaphor. I, I'm a deep believer in this. Okay? I think it was very salutary for the Japanese to have this. Uh, without it, I think it would have been very difficult for them. Uh, uh, but this, this form of technology control by one center raised the expectation that Japan would run Europe, uh, would run Asia. And this turned out to be wrong. My first two, two or three trips to Japan in the late 1970s, early 1980s, I said, I know nothing about the country. I will take three slices and study those intensely. I just talked to a lot of people. So there was the textile industry, the steel industry, and the computer industry. And so I built sort of connections with people, Nippon Steel and a couple of other steel. I mean, one Nippon Steel had just sold a large steel firm 
there's sort of, yeah, large modern integrated steel mill to Korea. So in one of my interviews, I asked them, why do you do this? This isn't very smart. I mean, you will create your own competition. Sell them some older technology. That would make sense. They said, no, you know what, Professor Katzenstein, we are pretty smart. We sell them the steel mill and the integrated plants, but you can't sell the soft technology. How, how to really operate it. Not by blueprint, but how it actually works. That margin of the soft technology is accounting for most of the profits. They can never catch up with this. I said, why not? They're stupid. Okay. I said, okay. I go back three years later, having read in the New York Times that the Koreans wanted a second steel mill from Nippon Steel. And Nippon Steel said, no, no, no second steel mill. So I asked them, so what happened? I said, well, you know, we were wrong. I said, what, what was wrong? I said, they aren't so stupid. Okay. Uh, that is, they had figured out the soft technology themselves and they were beating Nippon Steel at their own game. Lower production costs, higher profits in Korea. Well, this had enormous ramifications for, Korea, for, for the steel industry, for the shipbuilding industry, for the automobile industry. So it turned out that even though the conception in Japan was that the Japanese steel industry would be the lead goose, it didn't turn out that way. And this story repeated itself in industry after industry, okay, with the semiconductor industry being the most visible, uh, in which the Japanese were going to beat the Americans. They did in the late 1980s. The American producers being almost out of money make a brilliant move, they go to the Taiwanese and say, we want to make a deal. We'll open up our technology base, and you open up your production alliances. The Taiwanese said, okay, our production alliances are in order. We get your technology, you get our production system. It took five years to wipe out the Japanese industry. So that was a very exciting and pivotal moment because it was a high-tech industry. So Japanization was not the making of Asia in the image of Japan, as the Japanese had thought. It was a much more complicated process of give and take. Um, so what, you know, I was looking at the Hotel Otani here, and I remember having tea with people who were writing books and articles about Parks Nipponikana in the 1980s. That was the image that the world would be reorganized around a particular conception, a Japanese conception, which didn't rely on military might. It relied on technological might. And when I asked them, what do you mean by technological might? They said, we will be determining the technological parameters of evolution for other societies. Well, the Walkman had its day, and it's gone. It's iPod now. And Sony is run by a Scott. And Sony was the cutting edge non-Japanese, unconventional company, together with Matsushita. So, so this notion didn't work. It wasn't a military notion of power, which the Japanese had in mind. It was an economic notion, a, a techno-nationalist economic notion. It didn't work out that way. And I don't, I'm not critical about, you know, everybody was thinking this way. The Germans were thinking that way in Germany. They didn't want to fight wars any longer, but they wanted their vision as institutionalized in money and banking to prevail over Europe. It didn't work out that way. From which I infer that somehow, despite Japan's economic lead in Asia, the world is more complex. 
it's not one country only giving. It's countries giving and exchanging. This is true not only of Japan, it's also true of the United States. 9-11, what the Americans call blowback, was getting it back. Americanization, suddenly the world was kicking back against Americanization. It hurt us very deeply. It disoriented us. Okay? We didn't know how to deal with this because we thought Americanization meant bringing Elvis Presley to the world. Uh, it didn't mean that it was that too, but it also meant the world bringing something back to the United States. Japanization meant reorganizing Detroit. The American automobile industry is destroyed by Japan. Okay? And American consumers loved it. So this process of Japanization was a two-way exchange. It's an open-ended process of diffusion, emulation, and adaptation, adaptation. And it's very well studied in the case of the automobile industry. We have excellent social science research on this. And there is reasonably good research now on popular culture, which Japan also exports. And where is also receiving now from Korea and other places popular culture imports. So one could take this style of analysis and apply it to Germany and Europe. Uh, but I will be brief. Uh, I did write a chapter in a book once called, and the book had the title, edited by Andy Markowitz, The German Model. And I still remember the sort of chest-thumping quality of those meetings, which led to that book. And then in 1989, I remember being in Berlin in November 89, and great elation among the Germans, including myself. And my reaction was, boy, you got a big problem on your hands. And the Germans, a totally different reaction. They said, oh, das schaffen wir, das machen wir mit links, lässig. Oh, we'll manage this problem. We'll do this with our left hand, without a sweat. And I just looked at it and said, you are clueless. You are clueless about what unification actually will mean. Because they didn't understand the nature of this power exchange process as a two-way thing. It wasn't just socializing the East Germans, educating them, transferring a lot of money. It was actually having to make adaptations. That turned out to be very hard for Germany. Now, in the context of Europe, because it's not Germanization but Europeanization, it's really very tra uh, traceable in the concept of European enlargement. Uh, the European polity is a civilian polity. Its military might is very limited because the military control is at the national level. Uh, it prides itself in being a normative power. Uh, it wants to be exercising soft power. It wants to do all these things which Japan wanted to do. There's a remarkable structural similarity in how the self-conception is and how the values are and how politicians talk and how elections uh, electoral publics react. Uh, it comes with a fair amount of hypocrisy, just as in the United States, because you need to, in some ways, still rely sometimes in a while on somebody else fighting. Uh, and that turns out to be the Americans. But that, too, is a similarity between Europe and Japan. Um, so enlargement, in fact, leaves Europe now with what I would call a vacuous sense of self. So Europe of 27 countries, if you take associate members with it, it's about 80 countries. What is Europe other than being against something? That is the only positive European identification is to be aware that we are different from Islam. That's not a particularly appealing way of defining yourself. 
but that's actually what holds Europe together at an ideological level. Uh, and so the emptiness of the Japanese value system and the emptiness of the European value system too, there are some great similarities. Okay? And Europeanization is a two-way process too. It used to be a one-way process in the 19th century. It has become a two-way process. And you can see it powerfully in every member of the EU, how they affect each other. Very exciting to watch how this works in Eastern Europe. You could, of course, do the same thing, and this is a, one of the things I'm doing on this trip, for China, sinicization. You ask yourself, well, how does Chinese like to rise they think their moment has come, just as the Japanese and the Germans did. Uh, and I think they'll be just as disappointed. Uh, China's rise, I think, is a metaphor of a conception of power which is outmoded. Because it assumes that the Asia will be turned into, into a little China. The Sinocentric world order will return in modern form. And I think this makes no sense. Right? Sinicization, I think, has one advantage over Japan and Europe, an ideological uh, emptiness or vacuity, which may still really make it possible to become the center of collective imagination in faraway places like Africa. There is so much exciting thing happening in China that you could say it's like what in marketing is called a white brand. You just put your imagination into it. The American dream has many of those qualities of being a white brand. You, you, dream on, you, you dream things about yourself and what might be possible, and you say, I want to do this, and I can do it in America. And I always tell my friends, playing volleyball on a beach in California with beautiful women, isn't that the American dream? Right? That's what I was sort of thinking when I was 18. Well, it's a dream. It's not a reality. America is something very different. And but China has, contemporary China has this aspect to it. It, it makes it possible to project your hopes and aspirations. And that's a very powerful form of soft power. So far, it's not clear whether this is working. We're very early on in this. But uh, I wouldn't rule it out that China actually may be able to do it. So what about the future? And I want to stop here. Um, the future for Germany and Japan. On the German side, you can certainly say Germany is in much better shape now than it was under the chancellorship from the perspective of foreign policy, of the most disastrous foreign policy leader it had since 1945, which was Chancellor Schroeder. Uh, Schroeder was a, I guess you call it Machtpolitiker, uh, although I think that concept of that concept of power in a welfare state isn't quite what Hitler meant by it, but. Uh, uh, but in terms of foreign policy, uh, he hadn't a clue. And he was irresponsible. Uh, and this has done long-lasting damage, I think, to German foreign policy. Uh, Schroeder, uh, um, Fischer was much more adept uh, in being able to pursue a policy of independence from the United States without offending the United States. Uh, he was just, he knew how to do this better. Uh, now, the result, the, the, the problem for, 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 for Germany, I think, is that because of its historical legacy, its anti-Americanism is actually not, I think it is in part a code for being anti-German. Its anti-Americanism is psychologically close to home because this geopolitical vision uh, 
is, is part of what Germany once was. And the Germans, I know, detest nothing more than the old Germany. Uh, and they see that in America. I think it's a very simplified and oversimplified view of the United States, but it's not wrong. So the question for Germany will be that if Russia were indeed to rise, uh, there's good reason to believe that the rise in oil prices and energy prices is not a cyclical but possibly a secular change. Uh, it may well be that with China and India entering world market that for the first time in 150 years the terms of trade have shifted in the, to the advantage of raw material producers. That would be a revolution in the world economy. Putin isn't, back, uh, isn't betting on it. Putin's dissertation, written by his own professor and submitted to the University of Leningrad in 1997, uh, uh, is quite clear that he wants to use the resources for a transition period, 15 to 25 years as his time horizon, to re-establish Russia as a major power. Uh, but, you know, he's taking over the party as prime minister. He's going to be around for a long time, and I think he's extremely skillful and extremely shrewd and extremely, I think he, he, he has a very good sense about positioning Russia. Uh, and if after 15 years he were to conclude that indeed the terms of trade have shifted in a secular way towards raw materials, he wouldn't have to worry about what he's worrying about now, which is he needs to diversify away from oil. Russia is Gazprom. It's a one-company country. Uh, and, and this is a very dangerous game to play. It's called the resource curse. Most countries who rely on one export commodity enjoy their seven fat years and then they enjoy their 70 lean years. It never works out. And he knows it. He's smart enough. But he would need to diversify the Russian economy in a hurry, and I'm not sure he has enough political clout domestically to do it. There's very little evidence that this is happening. There's some evidence certainly more than in the case of Venezuela. Venezuela is just consuming. Uh, but if there was a rise of Russia based on a shift in the, in the, raw, in the, in the material conditions in the world, uh, what would be Germany's reaction? What would be Europe's reaction? Uh, and what would be the implications for American-European-German relations? This is one of the things which I think is a longer-term issue. What about Japan? Well, in the case of Japan, it seemed, at least if you were reading some academic writings in some uh, political military punditry, that somehow neoconservatism had come to Japan in the form of Abe, uh, and that the neo-nationalists were sort of turning Japan around towards something new or something old, depending on how pessimistic you were. Uh, I was rather skeptical about this, and I have had long discussions with Dick Samuels, who just published a book on foreign policy, as did I. Um, Abe, to the, to the, I don't think he was thinking strategic, he wasn't that kind of thinker, but some people around him were thinking about Japan as the Britain of Asia. I know it was an offshore island, it was going to create a new enduring alliance with the United States, uh, it was going to be marching shoulder to shoulder with the United States, and I was going to give up on the Asian option altogether. This, I thought, was extremely foolish and short-sighted. Just as foolish and short-sighted 
as a foreign policy of Chancellor Schroeder, who, after all, didn't observe the first maxim of German foreign policy since 1945, never choose between France and the United States. Uh, Schroeder said, oh, no, I'd choose. Uh, didn't work out too well. And Abe, I think, you know, if he hadn't flamed out for other reasons, would have, would have probably paid a very high price for, for his foreign policy. As it turned out, the Japanese public was not as interested in this turn towards the right as it was in other issues, for which, without his failing, you know, he had just bad luck. Um, so in this context, you can see what is the regional challenge for Japan. Well, it certainly has something to do with the rise of China. And how will, how will Japan cope with this? Um, Japan does not have this tradition of anti-Americanism, which Germany has now. But Japan did have that tradition. In 1960, President Eisenhower wanted to come to Tokyo, and the Japanese said, oh, please don't come. We can't protect your physical security between the airport and the Imperial Hotel, even when we draft 30,000 Yakuza to help us. Okay? There were 40,000 policemen in Japan. They were going to concentrate all 40,000. They were going to put in 30,000 gangsters, and that force together wasn't enough. And then Eisenhower didn't come. Anti-Americanism was a very powerful force. Uh, 35 years later, it's gone. Okay? It's not there in the, in the Japanese public. So something which is quite important now in Germany is quite marginal and unimportant in Japan. Uh, but how Japan navigates between China and the United States, I think, will be its major challenge. Uh, and whether it chooses to be the, become the Britain of Asia or whether it chooses to follow an even-handed policy, as I hope it will, uh, remains to be seen. So I think that was about an hour. Thank you. Mm -hmm.